is The Resident Review, a plastic surgery podcast. This is a platform designed for education of plastics, hand, and craniofacial surgery trainees from medical student to master surgeon. Our episodes take you through high yield topics along with experts in the field in order to maximize your knowledge and refine your techniques. If you like what you hear today, be sure to visit our website at theresidentreview.com for episodes, outlines, resources, and more. Stay tuned after the episode for a brief message from our sponsors. Hi, and welcome back to The Resident Review, our quick hit, hit series. I'm Tori Wickenheiser, and I'm joined by Rosie Tillis from both residents from Duke, and we are going to be talking about burns Yay. today. Everyone gets so excited for quick hits on burns. Okay, so we will start off by talking a little bit about types of burns, then we'll talk about physiology, um, and then resuscitation and treatment in burn patients. And then we'll talk a little bit about burn reconstruction and some of the pla- more plastics procedures that we can do for these patients. And then we'll finish up by talking about complications in burn patients. Of which there are many. So many. Um, Tori just, just finished her burn rotation and she was so excited to be there. I was in the thick of it. She I really was. Say. She really was. So we're coming to you live from an expert. Um, <laughs> You want to start us off with some some acid? I would love to. (laughs) Um, First, we're going to talk about the different kinds of burns that we're tested on. We're going to start with some talk about acid burns. So specifically looking at hydrofluoric acid, this causes um, basically a change in the ion concentration. So it's a combination of fluoride ions to calcium ions and the balance of that, um, that is kind of off balance and it leads to hyperkalemia. Um, it causes a liquefactive necrosis and the pain will be out of proportion to exam. Fun fact, I actually accidentally inhaled HCL in my (laughs) lab and I can tell you pain out of proportion to exam. Oh my God. My nose. Um, anyways, no, nose is fine. Nose is fine. (laughs) Nose did not need the treatment, which would be copious irrigation with water and then <laughs> calcium gluconate gel to offset that disruption in the balance. Like we talked about, I don't have any other personal experiences to relate to this podcast. So this will God. Be enjoy it while it lasts for phosphorus burns. These are commonly, um, included in fireworks and fertilizers. It's associated with hypocalcemia, hyperphosphatemia, and sudden death. Um, treatment includes immediate debridement, copious irrigation, saline soaked gauze or copper solutions and cardiac monitoring. And then phenol burns, uh, are another type of acid burn. And those are treated with polyethylene glycol. So hydrofluoric acid, calcium gluconate, phosphorus, saline, lots, lots of irrigation or copper, and then phenol polyethylene glycol. Isn't that Miralax? It is. I was going to say it. And then I was like, mm-hmm. nah, it's too much. We're <laughs> still so burns. Miralax. burns. Miralax. You're like, re- don't worry, I got this. We're ready. <laughs> We're ready to treat. All right. Electrical burns. Um, so typically electrical burns are very severe, and the severity of the injury is proportional to the cross-sectional area of the tissue carrying the current. So the most severe injuries are seen in the smallest areas, like the wrist and the ankle. And um, it correlates with the highest level of resistance in the tissue. So the highest level of resistance is in the cortical bone, um, followed by cancellous bone, fat, tendon, skin, and then it's 
the lowest in the muscles, vessels, and nerves. Um, typically, these are treated with fasciotomies because the electrical burn actually extends very, very deep, obviously, because the cortical bone is the most sensitive to the burn. Um, and when we do these fasciotomies, you also, especially because most people grab onto things with their hands and that's how they get electrical burns. So treat it with a carpal tunnel release and a Guillain's canal release as well, because the risk of compartment syndrome is high. Ascarotomy is not effective in these cases. You need a fasciotomy. And then um, a, a high voltage electrical burn, we were tested on this very specific number, um, is anything over 1000 volts. And anything over 1000 volts can cause like arcing of the electricity, a wide tissue destruction, and actually fractures of the bones, which is terrifying. Moving on from electrical burns or classic burns that we're thinking about with acid, we're going to talk a little bit about frostbite. Um, and so the physiology of frostbite is actually from ice crystal formation in the intracellular and extracellular spaces. Um, the mechanism of frostbite itself is extracellular crystals that form and the osmotic pressure then increases. Water leaves the cells and that leads to intracellular dehydration and eventual cell death. The treatment of frostbite includes rapid rewarming in water at a temperature of about body temp, so 104 degrees or 40 degrees Celsius. Um, you do not want to use radiant heat in this scenario. You actually want to submerge in water and followed by consideration of whether or not the patient needs an intraarterial thrombolytic uh, after an angiography. So to evaluate for actual thrombosis or you know, microthrombi that need to be treated with thrombolytics. And this, if, if necessary, significantly decreases the rate of amputation if it's administered within 24 hours of frostbite. So that would be intraarterial thrombolytics um, after angiography and decreased rate of amputation if administered within 24 hours. TPA. You can also, oh yeah, TPA. TPA. You can also treat with NSAIDs for their antiprostaglandin activity. This inhibits thromboxane and decreases secondary tissue damage related to the frostbite. And then technetium 99 triple phase bone scanning, very common test. <laughs> I'll order it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> frequent on my, on my favorites list, uh, can actually accurately estimate the level of amputation. If you're thinking about that, uh, treatment plan, it's not therapeutic, but it does, like I said, accurately, uh, estimate the level of amputation needed if it's completed within the first few days of injury. So in burn patients, the physiology is altered. As we all know, there are um, significant hemodynamic changes after burn, and it also impairs your immunologic response. So the hemodynamic changes after burn occur usually from hypovolemia, and that includes decreased cardiac output, decreased peripheral blood flow, decreased urine output, and increased systemic vascular resistance. And this is all because you've lost your barrier to the outside world, and so you're just losing water. It's just evaporating off you at a really high rate. Um, and then burns impair both the humoral and cellular immunity by depressing levels of circulating immunoglobulins. Um, they also upregulate the integrins and cytokines, TNF-alpha and IL-1. IL-8, and then um, decreased B lymphocytes, NK cells, and T helper cells, and an increased number of T suppressor lymphocytes. So you have basically a huge alteration in your um, blood and cellular immunity. Thinking about a lot of the different things we'll talk about in terms of resuscitation and consideration of various therapies, um, we're talking about the total body surface area that's been burned um, and we follow the rule of nines. So when we're talking about total body surface area, the other really important thing is that this only includes second and third degree burns. 
So that was actually kind of delineated on last year's test where they talked about total body surface area, including first, second and third degree burns, and then second and third degree burns. And it's second and third degree only in terms of counting for the total body surface area burned. So the head and neck accounts for nine. The anterior torso is 18. Posterior torso is 18. I kind of split it in half in my mind. So I try to make everything into a nine. So the nine of the chest and like the nine of the abdomen, and then the nine of the upper back and the nine of the lower back so that you get 18. Um, and you can still technically call it the rule of nines. And then each upper extremity is nine. And then each lower extremity is 18. So I think about the front of the leg being nine and the back of the leg being nine and then the front of the leg being nine, the back of the leg nine. I love that. And then the perineum counts for 1%. Criteria for transfer to a burn center includes partial thickness burns over 10%. So second and third degree burns over 10%. Burns that involve sensitive areas, including the hands, feet, genitalia, and joints. Third degree burns in general, electrical or chemical burns, inhalation injury, and then pediatric patients who have suffered a burn injury. Burns greater than 20% total body surface area can get heterotopic ossification. And you want to prevent that with radiation therapy, NSAIDs, and the treatment is excision. So um, kind of summarizing, rule of nines for total body surface area becomes super relevant for all the remaining things we talk about. And then pretty low, honestly, threshold to send someone with a burn to a burn center if it includes any of those above criteria that we talked about, especially in pediatric patients. Definitely. They also have a ton of different resources that they have at burn centers. Um, as we get to see at UNC. Thanks, UNC. All the nurses are really well trained in these places that we work at, and um, there are a lot of specific changes that, that we use. So fluid resuscitation for burns is based on the Parkland formula, which is four times the total body surface area of burns times the weight in kilograms. You wanna give this total within the first 24 hours, but you wanna give half of it within the first eight hours and the rest of it over the next 16 hours. This again, TBSA is only for second and third degree burns. So do not include, include the first degree burns. And it's only for those that encompass over 20% of the total body surface area. Um, I feel like we're often tested on this and they'll say like, oh, this much was given within, you know, the first two hours. So how much do we need to give however long after? So just know that the first half of your Parkland formula volume is given in the first eight hours and then the next is over the next 16. And what I learned on my burn rotation is if the patient presents later on, you count it from the time that they were burned. So if they come to you four hours after, then you have four hours to give that first eight hours worth of fluid, um, which is it's a lot of fluid. really aggressive. That's a lot. Really, really important for the patients. Mm -hmm. um, the fluid of choice is ringer's lactate. And then inadequate resuscitation, um, as we can expect from hypovolemic shock, is associated with hemodynamic collapse and end organ damage. Over-resuscitation can lead to infections, acute respiratory um, compromise, and abdominal compartment syndrome. And so although it seems like it's difficult to over-resuscitate some of these people, um, you really actually can do it, and you have to watch them for the abdominal compartment syndrome, which is often monitored by um, a uh, probe in the bladder actually. And then the best measure of fluid management is urine output. So you're looking for 0.5 mils per kg per hour in children, and then 30 to 50 mils per hour in adults. 
We're going to talk a little bit about some of the topical medications for burns. These come up a lot and they each have their associated side effect, which they love to test us on. Mm -hmm. Um, So silver nitrate is the first one we'll talk about. It has generally poor tissue penetration. So good for superficial use. Um, It's used in toxic epidermal necrolysis. So 10 um, or Stevens Johnson syndrome and uh, has staph and pseudomonas coverage, and it can cause hyponatremia. So I think of silver nitrate and natremia, hyponatremia. Um, sulfur sulfadiazine is another very common one. It has also limited capacity to really penetrate the wound bed. It's also mainly working at the surface epithelium, and it can cause a transient neutropenia. Um, I have no mnemonic for that. And then mafinide acetate or sulfamylon. This one is really effective at penetrating burn eschar as well as cartilage. So it's really commonly used for um, decreasing the risk of separative chondritis in burns of the ear. Um, it is a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. So it's associated with metabolic acidosis. So I think acetate acidosis, and it can be fatal if used over large surface areas in patients that also have an inhalation injury, because you're thinking about it, it's putting a metabolic acidosis on top of their respiratory injury, leading to a respiratory acidosis. Um, and that can be a real problem. Mm-hmm. So silver nitrate hyponatremia silver sulfadiazine, transient neutropenia, and then methanide acetate or sulfamylon is a metabolic acidosis. Like I always see those come up. Oh yeah. So airway management in patients with burn injuries is really important because they often have hidden inhalational injuries. So you want to look for signs of this, including singed eyebrows, charred face, or difficulty breathing. For some reason, when I was in Florida, all these people were trying to like light up cigarettes and they were on oxygen. And this is a very common thing that we saw. Um, diagnosis is made with a fiber optic bron- bronchoscopy. Um, inhalational injuries also carry the risk of carbon monoxide poisoning. Although the O2 sat is often falsely normal. So if you see a sense of an inhalational injury, don't believe the O2 sat. Um, you want to make sure they're getting hundred percent oxygen and you may need to intubate them. The 100% oxygen delivery leads to the dissociation of the carbon dioxide molecule from the hemoglobin, and so oxygen can take its place. Operative burns in the in the OR are considered airway burns. So if you um, have a concern for airway injury, including smoke or burning odor, immediately remove the endotracheal tube and pour saline in the airway, and then you can bronch them and establish the airway again. Nutrition in burn patients is super important. Um, Enteral feeding is the preferred modality of access in burn patients, Um, but generally poor intestinal perfusion is a risk in burn patients, especially those on a high number of pressors or they're truly in hypovolemic shock. Um, So gastric feeding should be reduced to trophic feeds to reduce um, risks there. And then signs of threatened intestinal perfusion are, you know, sort of what we would think of commonly like with um, ischemic bowel. So abdominal distension, uh, high gastric output from an NG tube or other access greater than 200 mLs um, per day and hypotension that's requiring vasopressor support. So um, this is kind of a clinical scenario where you have to use your judgment. Either the patient is like too sick or on too many pressors to really be getting full feeds, or you can have patients on full feeds that develop that clinical scenario. And then they could also end up with um, mouth perfusion of the intestines. Uh, so thinking about how much these patients need nutritionally, the Carreri formula is the one that we will be tested on. I'm sure at some point in the near future. Um, so this is 25 kilocalories per kilogram per day 
plus 40 kilocalories times the percent of total body surface area that's burned per day. So 25 times their weight. So 25 kilocalories per every kilogram of weight that the patient already is. And then 40 times the total body surface area burned. So with patients with high percentage of body surface area burned, you can really require an extremely large amount of additional nutritional support to help heal. So can't forget about that. Um, so initial operative treatment of burns include, usually includes escherotomies if the burns are circumferential. Do you do excisions um, and grafting? And excisions are really important for suspected infection in critically ill patients. And when you do these excisions, you want to excise uh, generally down to the fascia. And then we can talk a little bit about burn reconstruction. Um, these are pretty prominent uh, plastic surgery procedures that includes split, th split thickness skin grafts. And when you put these on, you can use wound, uh, wound backs, essentially negative pressure wound therapies for the, um, oh my God, what's the word I'm looking for? Bolster. Bolster. Use negative pressure wound therapy for the bolsters for these dressings. Um, as this has been shown to have improved survival of the skin grafts. You can also use Integra, which can be called on the test a bilaminar skin substitute composed of a silicone outer layer and a biologic scaffold. And the application of Integra um, is done at close to the initial burn, and then you remove it and skin graft it around 21 days later or three weeks later. And Integra can, or bilaminar skin substitute can um, be associated with a decrease in hypertrophic scarring, although it does require a second surgery for the skin graft, and so it can increase the length of stay. And then we have cultured epidermal autographs. So this is a good option to resurface large wound beds in massively burned patients with limited donor sites. Basically take a small skin biopsy and expand the keratinocytes by a thousand fold. The unfortunate, um, the, the risk of this is that they lack a dermal layer, so it's very fragile and it is also very expensive. Another thing that we talk about with burn reconstruction is post-operative splinting. Um, the, this is really important to avoid contractures. The optimal position of um, all of the joints includes the neck and side extension, shoulders fully abducted at 90 degrees, elbows fully extended at 180, wrist in neutral or slightly extended, and hands in intrinsic plus position. Facial burns in the periorbital area should be intervened upon early. And in the case of eyelid contracture, you wanna do a release followed by skin grafting with a full thickness skin graft instead of a split thickness skin graft because you want to reduce the amount of contracture as much as you can. And if you need to do a contracture release, you can do a release superficial to the orbicularis oculi and superior to the tarsal plate. One last medical intervention that we can do for burns includes oxandrolone, which is a testosterone delivery derivative, and it leads to better bone, heart, and muscle strength in these burn patients. We're going to move on from the adult world and talk a little bit about pediatric burns. Um, so the IV fluid resuscitation and peds burn um, should still be Ringer's lactate, but with an added, <clears throat> excuse me, 5% dextrose um, in those pediatric patients. Oxandrolone, what, like we just talked about, this synthetic steroid can um, be a administered to pediatric patients with greater than 30% total body surface area burns. Um, and that has been shown to improve their height, bone mineral content, cardiac work, and muscle strength following that kind of an insult. Uh, suspected child abuse comes up with burn 
injuries in children, and that includes significant burns um, to the hands and feet, and those are indications to transfer to a burn center. So basically burn injuries that don't make sense with the story or in abnormal patterns um, should raise a, a red flag for uh, suspected abuse, and those patients would be well served at a burn center. So when we talk about scar treatment after burns, we can use pressure garment therapy, which works by exerting pressure onto the surface of the scar, and it tried works opposite of any sort of contracture. The mechanism of pressure garment therapy actually includes inhibition of the transformation of fibroblasts to myofibroblasts, and this causes improved strength of the scar and more densely packed collagen. And then moving on to scar contractures, since we know what we can now use on scar contractures, um, severe burn contractures uh, usually require perforator flaps if available locally or free tissue transfer if there are no local options. Um, you can also use Z-plasties, which lengthens a contracted scar, breaks the straight line, and then shifts the soft tissue contour. So it's really great for neck contractures, and Z-plasties are transposition transposition flaps. We'll talk a little bit more about Z-plasties and the expected lengths of lengthening in the um, flap episode, I believe. And then other options include tissue expansion or skin grafting. For burn ectropion, which we often see in the lower lid, you can do skin graft grafting for ectropion release. Particularly, you want to use full thickness skin grafting to reduce any, um, any chance of further contracture. And then the most common, commonly performed contracture release is neck contracture release. All right. We're going to talk a little bit about complications from uh, burn injuries. And in terms of the things that are associated with a worse prognosis um, and increased mortality, those are burn patients that are older than 60 years old, have greater than 40% total body surface area injured, an inhalational injury, significant third degree burns, pre-existing illness, and a history of tobacco or ethanol abuse. Electrical burns and circumferential burns carry a high risk of compartment syndrome, like we talked about at the beginning of our episode, um, and electrical burns in the wrist can lead to a Volpman's ischemic contracture of the upper extremity if left untreated. And so remember that that's the deep compartment um, that fibrosis first, and that's the FDP and FPL specifically that you'll see um, out in that injury. And then, you know, related to compartment syndrome, always remember your five P's of compartment syndrome, pain, pallor, paresthesia, pulselessness, and paralysis. Um, so have a really high index of suspicion, especially in the electrical burn patients, um, but really with any burn patient that's going to have a large amount of swelling in those confined areas. The treatment for compartment syndrome, like we talked about, is fasciotomy. And then the sequela of compartment syndrome can be rhabdomyolysis uh, and consequently renal failure and metabolic uh, disorders like hyperkalemia and hypocalcemia and profound acidosis. You can treat that with um, insulin and glucose and mannitol for the electrolyte and acid-based disorders, but ultimately the patients are going to need uh, compartment release and likely debridement if it's gone you know, undiagnosed for a large, large period of time and they're in the point where they're at rhabdomyolysis, they may even need um, renal replacement therapy. So for hypovolemic shock, uh, like we talked about a little bit before as well, you can see this after tangential excisions of large total body surface area burns, um, especially because now they've lost their ability to regulate their fluid balance, like Rosie mentioned. Um, and again, reminder, this includes decreased urine output, tachycardia, and hypotension. 
sepsis after burns is a huge risk um, because the patients have also lost their ability to fight infections when their skin is removed. So the most common bacteria, we were tested on this in one of the older exams, are there's three. So MRSA, Pseudomonas, and Klebsiella are the three most common bacteria for post-burn infections. You want to treat these patients empirically with vanc and zosin. Um, you do not necessarily need to include empiric fungal therapy or antifungal treatment, um, but vancomycin and zosin would be the empiric choice. And then we also alluded to this uh, at the beginning, but heterotopic ossification showed up on last year's exam. So this is a complication of massive burn injury. So greater than 20%, the elbow is the most common site of occurrence. Um, and you can prevent this with radiation therapy and NSAIDs. If you have it and it can't be prevented, then surgical excision is the treatment for restoration of range of motion if that is affected, especially at the elbow. On x-ray, the uh, finding is gonna be soft tissue lamellar calcification. And then another complication that can come up is a margillin's ulcer. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about all of the skin cancer related things in that specific episode, but this is malignant degeneration of a prior wound or previous scar to squamous cell carcinoma. And typically the timeline for that is going to be about 10 years out from injury at earliest. So um, they did kind of give a scenario in a question and the kind of key hint was that it was 10 years out. Um, and so anything sooner, you're going to think about other things rather than a margillin's ulcer. And then just a couple miscellaneous points. Um, so underneath burn umbrella would also be TENS or Stevens-Johnson syndrome. Uh, this presents with several days of indolent and nonspecific symptoms after medication administration. Uh, common ones are Bactrim, allopurinol, and phenytoin, so a lot of the sulfa drugs, um, and that includes fever, malaise, and dysphagia. It eventually progresses to hemodynamic collapse, skin exfoliation, and mucosal sloughing, and this is also an indication for people to go um, to a burn center if they are you know, in hemodynamic shock or collapse from TENS or Stevens-Johnson syndrome, and those medications are good ones to know. And just like that, we burned through it. Oh, wow. That was, that was rough, but well done. <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed. Continuously impressed. I'm going to listen back to that and like actively want to die, but <laughs> we're, fine. we're fine. Let's do some fast facts. Let's do it. Close out. All right. So, um, a couple of fast facts in this episode. So fluid resuscitation is guided by the Parkland formula, which is four times TBSA of second and third degree burns times the weight. And then you want to give half in the first eight hours and the other half in the next 16 hours. Electrical burns, the severity of the injury is proportional to the cross-sectional area of the tissue able to carry the current. And then the mechanism of frostbite includes extracellular crystal formation and osmotic pressure increase. Water leaves the cells leading to intracellular dehydration and eventual cell death. All right. Well, thanks for listening to our Quick Hits Burns discussion today. Hopefully it's helpful. Um, don't forget this is available anywhere you listen to podcasts and recommend it to your friends so we can all do better. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.